Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Man, man, oh man, oh man. You guys, man, you guys are a raucous crowd this morning. And uh, so glad you made it. Uh, man, how many of you volunteered for, I know Shane mentioned it, but how many of you volunteered for our Easter egg hunt? Could you just raise your hand? Can you stand? Uh, church, can we give it up for our volunteers? Man, we couldn't have done it without you. We love you guys. Come on. God is good. He's really, really good. Hey, all the kids survived. Can I get an amen to that? 20,000 kids, like, with, with sugar. I don't know why we do this event, but we do it because we love people, right? And uh, they all made it. Uh, what, you, get, you guys know the drill. Could you turn to your neighbor, give them a high five, tell them how much you love them. Come on, tell them they look good. Come on, you guys look good. You brought your Easter best. Some of you are breaking out the pastels. I love it. Pastels. All right, turn to your second choice, your other neighbor. And uh, in all seriousness, say, go Michigan. Come on, come on, go Michigan. Uh, do, we, do we have any Michigan Wolverine fans in the house? We got two, three, three. All right, wow. Um, we live in Boise. We like the underdog, right? Well, I'm going to get into our message this morning. If you give me about 82 minutes, it's a bad joke, bad preacher joke. Uh, but if you give me, I got 33 minutes and 27 seconds. And uh, I need to get in the message really quick. Uh, if you brought your Bibles, turn to John chapter 20. John 20, I'm just going to read just a few verses. We're going to begin in verse 1. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. We got the big Bible up behind me. Can I get an amen? I think we do. That we, there we go. All right. Verse 1, uh, John writes, uh, he's talking about Easter. Now, everyone say now. On the first day of the week, this is crucial, we'll talk about this. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So we have an empty tomb. So she ran, everyone say ran. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them are running. How many runners do we have here? Okay, we got a few. How many of you like to run? All right, you're just like first service. We all, guys, we, we, we got to go back to the gym. Can I get any man to that? So here's, there's a lot of running in this original Easter story. So what, what's, what's that about? Uh, we'll talk about that here soon. But the other disciple outran Peter. And reached the tomb first. Uh, John, the beloved, he's faster than fast. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Verse 6, and Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So here we have a strange, strange happening. And then the other disciple, verse 8 who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, everyone say saw, he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture 
that he must, Jesus, must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back, kind of a little anticlimactic, went back to their homes, and they had some barbecue. Can I get an amen? We're going to skip a few verses. Um, we, we actually talked about the story of Mary and Jesus last year. I'm going to skip that. I'm going to fast forward to uh, John 20, verse 24 through 31. It's going to read just a few verses, then we'll pray. We'll get into the message. Uh, John continues, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the bodily risen Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Man, Thomas, man, he's my man. I love him. He's a thinker. How many thinkers do we have here? Okay. Mark Francie, you are not. I'm kidding. Mark, is, he's brilliant. He is. I, we, we like to make fun. Uh, but come on, we're, we're thinkers here. Thomas, I love him because he needs some evidence. How many of you are like that? I, I need some evidence, right? Show me the money. All right. Verse 20, where did that come from? The devil is a liar. Wait, bleh. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace. How many of you need more peace today? Peace be with you. And he continues, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him and said, my Lord, I love this, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed? Because you have seen me. Blessed, 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 blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And then we close here in verse 31 this chapter, but these are written so that you may believe, everyone say believe, that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's not his last name. The Christ is, essentially means Jesus is the king of the world, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life. This is good news, people. Life in his name. Amen. You can bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you that you are here today and in the next 28 minutes and eight seconds. I thank you for helping me to share what you put on my heart. We love you, Jesus. We bless you. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. It's Easter it's funny, I, I, I've been thinking about Easter my whole life, been a Christian my whole life, and there is this je ne sais quoi quality to Easter. Like, what is it, right? Everyone say, what is it? There's like a what is it factor to Easter. Like, Jesus coming back from the dead. Okay, how does that, have you ever thought this? How does that relate to my life? Like, Jesus, is this like a bizarre miracle? 
uh, Jesus um, coming back from the dead? Is this like um, some arbitrary magic trick that God uses to prove his existence? A lot of people are confused. Even a lot of Christians are confused about Easter. And uh, it's kind of like salami. Uh, anyone in the house love salami? Come on, raise your hand like you don't care. Don't worry about the vegans, right? The vegetarians, raise it with confidence right now. Come on. I love, I love salami. But does anyone know what those little white specks are? I like to call them B12 vitamins. We all know there's no vitamins, right, in salami. So there's that, what is that? I mean, what, come on, let's be honest. What in the world is salami? Please don't tell me. Because I want to continue, ignorance for me is bliss. And I want to continue to eat salami. Well, people, that, that's kind of their relationship with Easter and resurrection. We're a little bit confused. We're not quite sure what it means for us. We, like, we might do like the, the Pentecostal two-step on an on a Easter morning and declare that Jesus has risen. And then we go home, we're like, uh, what does that even mean? I want to talk about that. Before I do that, I need to talk about Good Friday. Everyone say Good Friday. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five, and say Good Friday. You guys are a good crowd. I love this crowd. So Good Friday. Good Friday is the day that Jesus was crucified. And what we have to, what we have to take a look at, what we have to understand is when we look at the Gospels uh, and you look at the public ministry of Jesus, you, you get this impression that creation is, is out of sorts. Like one scholar calls it, creation is like out of joint. Uh, Jesus is going around and he's healing the sick. Jesus heals the sick. He heals bodies. Uh, Jesus has power over DNA and sickness and disease. Uh, Jesus walks on water. Uh, he calms stormy seas. And uh, he actually takes five loaves and two fish and he multiplies it and he distributes it. Uh, but, but the implication is that there's something wrong with creation. And so we come to Good Friday at kind of the culmination of the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is on the cross. And this is what you have to understand. We find this in John chapter 19. And John tells this beautiful story that evil now has been drawn to its height. And so Jesus is on the cross. And he's now bearing the full weight of human folly and sickness and wickedness and uh, disorder and evil and shame and all the pain, Jesus on the cross is bearing the weight of that in his body. In fact, he's actually wearing it down. The cross is God's victory, or we could say God's love, which wins the victory over death itself. Jesus on the cross, he confronts death, this great anti-creation force, and he defeats it, defeats it, he exhausts it, through his love on the cross. And this is why I love sports. I'll explain. How many people like sports? I love sports. And what I love about sports, uh, sports fandom and the psychology behind it is fascinating to me. Uh, I have my favorite teams. I'm not going to mention my favorite teams. You guys know my favorite teams, okay? If you come to church for at least a week, you will know who I love. The Dallas Cowboys. Amen. But what's fascinating with sports and fandom and the relationship with their teams is that uh, fans and their teams, it's like their life is intimately bound up with the team. So what happens when the team wins and it's your team, you feel like you're a winner, 
right? You go and celebrate. You win the Super Bowl, Philadelphia Eagles, right? Uh, you go out and you celebrate with your homies, you celebrate with your friends, whatever. But when you lose, remember, it's, it's a weird psychological world. When, you, when your team loses, you feel like you lose. Like when my team loses, my wife gets out of town. When my team loses, right, I get a little grumpy, right? Um, that's just kind of how it is. Our life is intimately bound up in the life of our team uh, because they somehow represent us. Uh, this is true of what Jesus is doing on the cross. He represents all of us. He does what no one can do for themselves. He is our representative. And what is true, we talk about this a lot, the words of one scholar, what is true of Jesus is also true of, of us. His people. That doesn't mean that we're God like Jesus. That simply means that on the cross, Jesus as our representative and as our stand-in, everyone say stand-in, he took the full weight of radical evil and shame and your guilt and your pain and your despair and your dysfunction. We, I'm sure we have a couple dysfunctional people in the house. That was a trick. Come on, we're all dysfunctional. He took all of that on his body, and because he went to the cross and he bore that weight, you and I can experience life. Isn't it funny, as, as, you know, as we follow our teams, um, we, we don't do anything to contribute to the winning of our teams. Like, I, I, I mean, I, you know what I love about sports? I don't got to work out, right? I don't got to go to the gym. I don't have to scheme. Uh, around like different defenses or offenses. I simply, when I watch the Cowboys, I go home by myself because I like to scream a lot, right? And I get my Diet Pepsi and my maple bars and all the maple bar people said amen. And I watch my team win sometimes. This is what you have to understand about Good Friday. Good Friday is about Jesus standing in for you and I. Doing what you and I could never do, which leads me to this big idea. Christianity is not a self-help movement. And I love the organic movement. Like some of you are saying, I don't panic because I go organic, right? Like some of you, you do hot yoga, and that's great, and you're really into being kind to yourself, and like I need more therapy, and I'm not saying anything negative about that, but Christianity is not a self-help movement. Jesus is not your guru. He's not Tony Robbins, right? Is that a motivational speaker guy? Whatever his name is. Uh, that's not Jesus. In fact, what we see on Good Friday, Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a, a really good guy. He's more than a wandering philosopher saying nice things about the kingdom of God. Jesus is more more than some self-help, long-flowing hair, white-robed, sandal-wearing, don't wear sandals with socks. Can I get an amen? Teacher, Jesus is our Savior. So we need more than Subarus and saving the wells, and that's great. I love that. I'm not saying anything negative. I, I live in the North End, and I love that. But what we need, creation is off its course. 
And creation doesn't need more therapy. It doesn't need more post-enlightenment thought. Creation doesn't need more education or progressive thinking. Creation needs healing. It needs liberation. And on Good Friday, we have the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God. He hung on the cross, and he took the shame and the brokenness and all the stuff that that has defaced our planet and absorbed it in his body and paradoxically defeated death through his death. So then we come to Easter. John tells us in uh, chapter 20 that there's an empty tomb. Not only is there an empty tomb, we have a series of encounters uh, with the bodily resurrected Jesus. One thing to know about resurrection, and this is, I'm going to bring this full circle back to what is Easter all about. Resurrection is, is not some nice way of saying we fly off our soul, flies off to some disembodied location, right? Where we, for, for the rest of eternity, uh, we shine like glow sticks, right? Or you're going to love this. Or we're going to shine like R- Rihanna's diamonds, right? I say that at least five times a year, okay? Many people think that... that Man, the resurrection and Easter and Christianity is about going to some sort of disembodied location, playing a disembodied cello or harp, and then being turned into some sort of disembodied chubby little baby, right? That's my definition of hell. (laughs) Resurrection doesn't mean any of that. Resurrection, in fact, means re-embodiment. Now, this gets bizarre because I know we live in a world that says this can't happen, Right? We live in this post-enlightenment zeitgeist where we have been told our whole lives that miracles, it's an illusion, it's fiction. But here we have in this original Easter story the re-embodiment of Jesus. Resurrection was, was basically um, you were emphatically dead and then you were emphatically alive. You were dead, really, really, really dead. And then resurrection means you came back to life. It's a physical thing. Everyone say physical. It's a solid thing. It's, it's, it's a bodily thing. It's about, it's about God healing creation. In fact, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he said, I think, I think it was the Archbishop, he said that the resurrection of Jesus is Christianity. Christianity and the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Uh, It's not about heaven. It's about the resurrection of the Son of God and the healing of the space-time world. Which leads me to John's statement. John 20, verse 1. He says, now, everyone say now. On the first day of the week. What is John John doing? He's linking the, the bodily resurrected Jesus with the first day of the week. In other words, John is saying this is the eighth day or this is not the end of something, this is the beginning of God's new world. In other words, John is saying, hey guys, check this out. This might sound and feel crazy. You might might not be able to make sense, but through the resurrected Jesus, creation has been put to rights. Death, in other words, has been um, reversed or somehow God has taken to death, death and turned it back on itself. And by doing that, 
Creation is now being renewed and healed through the risen Jesus. It's like John is saying, hey, it's springtime. It's been winter for a long time, but now spring has arrived. How many of you love spring? I love spring. It's weird. Uh, anyone like winter? That's a true question. You don't raise your hand. Okay, put it down. Like winter, it's funny. Like I feel like I'm a bear in winter. Like I hibernate, right? Any hibernators here? Like it's funny, I went to the doctor. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I'm even saying this. Doctor, a couple of weeks ago, I got on the scale, you know, the thing that weighs yourself. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I gain all this weight? And I realized, oh, it's because I hibernate and I eat maple bars all winter long. Like it's funny, like winter is, it's dreary. Like even Shakespeare said, now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about this universal joy that we all experience when winter finally stinking comes to an end and new life, everyone say new life. Springtime starts to burst forth. Don't you love it when you see the plants and the flowers and the trees just start blooming and flourishing and bursting and I'm trying to think of other words to describe it. Like, I love it. Springtime, there's a joy. And what John is saying is that Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. And it's now springtime. Death has been defeated. There's now forgiveness for everybody. Everything wrong in creation has been made right. Healing is bursting out throughout the world. And you can be a part of it. Which, which leads me to John chapter 21. I love John chapter 21. And uh, it's one of my favorite verses. Probably my favorite chapter, favorite verse, verses in all the Bible. And we have a conversation between the disciples and Jesus. And so the disciples, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the story, they're, they're fishing. And uh, Jesus is on the shoreline. And uh, he's, cooking, he's cooking some breakfast. There's a charcoal fire. How many like charcoal fire? You got wood smoke. And um, Peter sees as Jesus on the shoreline. He doesn't first recognize him, but then they catch about 153 fish. And so Peter jumps into the water. They go to the shore, and uh, there's a charcoal fire. There's some fish. And I love these words from Jesus. Jesus looks to the disciples, and what does he say? This is a post-resurrection story. Jesus, in his resurrected body, looks to his disciples and says, Hey, guys, come and let's have some breakfast. Man, get the sausage, get the bacon flowing. Get the pancake mix from Cracker Barrel, right? That stuff is intoxicating. Can I get an amen to that? Get the syrup, right? Get the powdered sugar. Get the cream. What, what, what the cre cre crepes? Cre crepes. Get the crepes, right? Never had one, but they look amazing. Right? Get it. Let, let, let's have breakfast. What, what is going on here? What is John trying to tell us? What is Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is saying and linking his resurrected body with creation itself. In other words, this world matters. Your body matters. You matter. Let's say art matters. Any artist in the room, art matters. What we do in this life, it really matters. Everything from doing the laundry, can I get an amen, to playing lacrosse from Wells and walruses and Walmart, not Walmart, okay, but everything else, right? It matters. Matter matters. 
everything in this world, with the exception of cats and Philadelphia Eagle fans. It all matters. And can I get an amen? Wow. This world matters. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in our world that think creation is a cosmic punishment machine. We have a lot of secular thinkers um, that essentially say that life has no meaning. They've denied the resurrection and they've denied any hope of meaning. One author, local author in Portland, Oregon, I'm not going to, this is a long titled book and uh, I'm not going to be able to um, read it all, but it kind of goes like this. This is the title of her book. She goes, everything is meaningless. Love is a myth. Sex is gross. We all die alone and our stupid bodies will soon return to the dust from whence they came. Keep Portland weird. And keep it in Portland. Can I get an amen? <laughs> one, one evolutionary biologist said, there are no gods, there are no purpose, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Alice in Alice in Wonderland, what does she say? You're nothing but a pack of neurons. Dawkins, the famous anti-theist, goes, there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, cruel indifference. Christianity emphatically says no to this. Easter is about how God has defeated all the forces of evil won the victory, and brought healing to our world. So the question is, why are all the disciples running, right? It's not just getting a good workout. I know John and Peter, they're, man, they're competitive. How many men do we have here today? Quite a few of you. How many of you are competitive? All of you raise your hand. Well, these two guys, they're competitive. They're running. They want to get to the tomb. John gets to the tomb first. And it's fascinating. And I've thought about this. Why is there all this running around? Kind of feels like the Easter egg hunt. A lot of chaos. Matthew's account tells us that there's earthquakes and there's a lot of trembling and there's something that's happening. So why is there all this breathless haste in the first few verses of John chapter 20? Well, it makes sense because I think this is what you would do if something cataclysmic happened within creation. I would expect you to be running around, losing your mind in kind of a mental state of confusion if there was a nuclear holocaust. I would expect, man, if zombies were walking around in our city, we would be running around trying to figure stuff out. Can I get an amen to that? Like some of you are giving me that look, please let that happen. It's weird. Idahoans are weird. Like we want the apocalypse to come, right? We want to go in our backyard, get our guns, and go to the mountains, right? <laughs> we're weird. Come on. Keep Boise weird, right? It's kind of how we roll, but uh, they're running around not because Jesus is a wraith-like figure, some shadowy phantom ghost who's going to give some nice words to his disciples and then fly off to um, uh, heaven. No, Jesus is present and something cataclysmic has happened to creation itself. And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 12 through 19. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. There's no new creation. There's no transformation of the space-time world. Bodies and brains are not healed. We have no meaning. We have no purpose. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then we end here, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Then Paul quotes an Epicurean quote, then let's just eat, drink, because tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope for this world. There's no resurrection, there is no such thing as meaning. If there's no resurrection, why are we doing justice? If there's no resurrection, why are we loving people? If there's no resurrection, these are my words, I I think we just need to go home and binge watch Netflix, play Fortnite, I don't even know what that is, but people are talking about it. Eat a lot of food, raise our kids, because everything is just causally randomly put together. If there's no resurrection, there is no meaning. And if there's no resurrection, this world does not matter, but it does. Jesus came back from the dead, which leads us to my final thoughts, Two, two basic thoughts. Jesus, over and over and over, you find this in all four gospel accounts, Jesus gives essentially one command. He gives a couple commands, but essentially one dominant command to his disciples. When we, when we think of commands, we usually think, oh, okay, I, I get it, right? You've been talking about resurrection and now this whole new world stuff and it's springtime. And now I know what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to tell me what to do. He's going to tell me to be good. He's going to tell me to be holy. I, I got I to, gotta like, shape up or ship out, right, whatever. Um, Jesus is going to command me to be holy. I don't know if I, can, if I can do that, Chris. Well, that's not what Jesus does. He gives one command, but he doesn't say, I want you to behave. I want you to do this, 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 and this. He says, guys, I want you to not be afraid. He looks at his disciples and says, do not fear. The good news, because Jesus is risen from the dead and defeated death itself and new creation is bursting out everywhere. The good news is we don't have to be afraid for one second for the rest of our life. This isn't naivety. I'm going to say it. I, I, I think we just need to be honest. I think what Jesus is saying is all is well. That's the good news. The bad news is, is that you're basically trying to teach someone uh, or telling, essentially telling someone how not to breathe when it comes to fear. Because we breathe fear in every single day. We swim in it. 
Uh, one cultural critic, novelist, he, uh, he uh, came up with this great parable. Some of you have heard me say this before. It's a parable of three fish. There's actually two fish, two young fish. Everyone say young fish. Some of you are like, where are we going with this? Just follow me. Uh, these two young fish are swimming upstream, and they uh, come across this older fish. And this older fish looks at them and says, good morning, guys. And they respond, good morning. And the older fish then says, how's the water? And the two young fish are like, oh, yeah. They look a little bit like um, befuddled. And they look at each other and like, oh, it's great. And they kind of go along. They swim upstream. And then they stop and they look at each other. And one said to the other, what is water? They've been swimming in it their whole life. They didn't know that water was water. They didn't know water made you wet. See, the problem is a lot of people are swimming in fear. They don't even know it. We live in fear, we normalize it, and we just assume fear is a natural part of our life as we follow Jesus. And homie doesn't play that, and Jesus doesn't play that. When you, when you learn to follow Jesus, you're going to have to learn to deconstruct your fear because there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to be afraid about. Jesus won the victory over death itself. Jesus will have the final word over your life. Come on. Every tear will be wiped away. Jesus will remake new heavens and new earth, and he will be glorified. Can I get an amen? And yet the problem is we're, we're afraid of being alone. We're afraid of being unloved. We're afraid of being abandoned. Uh, some of us, and I think this is totally legitimate, we're afraid of clowns. Can we just ask Stephen King to stop writing um, his, the it just did it for me, right? Please stop writing all that stuff. Uh, some of us are uh, afraid of looking stupid, uh, not uh, finishing a project. Some of us are afraid of the future, of aging, of security, uh, a retirement. What are we going to do with the money? I don't know if I have enough money. And we are afraid, we are afraid, we are afraid. If you examine closely the source of all our fears, you will find lurking at the bottom our own fear of death. The good news is, is that death has collapsed back on itself. And what is true of Jesus is true of his disciples. Amen. All will be put to rights. God will renew creation. We have hope today. The reason why God says to his disciples, do not be afraid is because if you take every dehumanized style of behavior, lust, greed, lying, bitterness, rage, anger, if you stripped it down to his roots, you would find fear. 1 John 4, 18 says, perfect love cast out all fear. But the opposite's true. Perfect fear casts out all love and becomes ingrown and selfish and predatory. Fear, and if we have any Calvinists in here, and I totally agree with this, rebellion are at the root of every dehumanized style or habit. When you cast out fear, you wither the root of every habit that destroys your life. So, I got a minute and a half, how do we do this? Uh, how, how do we, because let's be honest, practicing not being afraid is a hard thing. How do we practice 
being not afraid? How do we be Easter people? How do we live um, our lives on Sunday rather than Friday? How do we do that? There's only one, one way we can do that, and we find it in the story of Thomas. Thomas tells the disciples, hey, um, I, I don't believe this stuff. I don't know what you guys saw, but this stuff isn't real. Jesus is not back from the dead. I, I, gotta, I, I need evidence. So I love Jesus. Jesus is all about loving his disciples. He's about eight days later, the story tells us, after this conversation that Thomas had with the disciples, Jesus appears to him and gives Thomas evidence of his, his body, his wounds, his love. I think some of you might be like Thomas today. You, you want to believe, but you just like, like, this is strange, Chris. I don't know if I can believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I, I, I want hope. I want meaning. I want forgiveness. But I just don't know if this stuff is real. The good news is God's not judging you because you have doubts. Jesus goes all the way and meets Thomas where he's at. Many of us think that we got we to gotta fix our lives. We can't have any doubts, right? We can't think um, in order for Jesus to come and reveal himself to us. No, I love it. Jesus gives evidence of his love in the context of paralyzing doubt. And I believe for some of us here today, I'm going to pr- pray for you, that God would reveal himself and give evidence of his love to you this week, over the next few weeks. And Jesus, after he appears to Thomas, says, Thomas, this is what I want you to do. Number one, I don't want you to be afraid. And the way you do that is you have to practice believing in me. Alice is, I think it's Alice, no, excuse me, the queen in Alice in Wonderland. She says that faith is like believing in six impossible things before breakfast. Usually when we talk about belief, we think about like, oh, I got to get my head around all these big doctrines. Uh, I got to go to school and I got I to become more sophisticated, more intelligent. I got to read, 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 read. And I think that's all good stuff. But that's not what faith is. Faith is simply turning away from yourself and looking to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And when you look to Jesus and you see the loving creator looking back at you with love, you know that everything's going to be okay. In fact, there was a, in, in just um, to flesh out this whole idea about faith, we have this conversation between Jesus and the disciples before his death. And the disciples asked Jesus, hey, uh, Jesus, can you improve our faith? So Jesus says, okay, guys, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and be cast in the sea. and It will be done as you say. I remember looking at this. I'm like, man, that, that does not make sense. Reading that, I'm like, how, what do you think the disciples were thinking when they read or when they listened to that, when Jesus spoke that to them? And so I remember growing up and just being really confused about that and about faith. And then over the years, I've come to realize that what Jesus is saying, guys, you don't have to have big faith. I'm not asking you to have big faith. You know what I'm asking? I'm asking you to have faith in a great God. You don't have to have big faith. Just have faith in a great big God. Know that he's the one that built the cosmos, right? He stretched out the horizons. He names all the far-flung galaxies, and he really loves you. And when you could start there, you, you turn away from yourself. Faith is the art of looking away from yourself and just trusting Jesus. That's where you find life.
That's where you find healing. You don't have to have all the answers. Can I get an amen? You have to have all, you cross all the doctrinal I, or T's and whatever. Um, no, you simply have to look to Jesus and put your trust in him. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 10 through 12, Paul gives us a beautiful picture or definition of faith. And he says, in which now, verse 10, has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know, I love this, for I know whom I have believed. Faith is a personal thing. It's not private. It's turning yourself to the personal creator who is faithful, who raised his son from the dead, and who loves you like you can't even imagine. That is what faith is. And then Paul continues, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. It's funny how, and I end here, uh, many times we take our problems and we try to fit Jesus into our problems. For us, because of our fear, problems are, they essentially become mythological. They almost become like God-sized problems, right? There's no such thing as a God-sized problem. Can I get an amen? Problems are not infinite in power and love. And yet many times we take our problems and we, we ascribe this God-sized character to it and then we try to fit Jesus into it. Jesus essentially comes like a guru, a friend, a nice teacher, but we forget that he is the one who created all things. He is the one that came back from the dead. Faith is learning to take your problems and seeing all your problems in light of who Jesus is. He came back from the dead. I don't think anybody else has done that in human history. He defeated death. He won the victory over the powers. Today, we can be confident that God will be faithful to give you his life, his presence, his hope, make all things new in you. Can I get an amen to that? Can you give Jesus a hand this morning? Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.